I told you last week that the last time I did a series on Psalm 23, there are six verses in Psalm 23, and I did six messages. (laughs) One message for each verse. And as I approached Psalm 23 last Sunday, I said, Lord, how in the world am I going to get through this psalm in one Sunday? And the Lord said, you're not. So he allowed me to divide it up into two. So today, I had a really clever title. Last week's title was In the Hands of Our Good Shepherd. And this week, the really clever title was In the Hands of Our Good Shepherd, Part 2. It took me a long time to think that up. Uh, My son's coming to stand behind me. Who knows what's going to do? I can't spend a lot of time. i got a lot of material to cover here. Three verses. So maybe I ought to talk. I told you last week that a lot of my study and research uh, in this psalm, a lot of it came from a book entitled, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Uh, do I have that book covered, William? You did what? Oh, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself. There we are. Anyway, I would recommend that book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, David uh, Philip Keller was actually a shepherd that made his living for eight years in Africa. And so a lot of, of, of the material that I've used and a lot of the quote, and we'll actually quote Philip Keller after a while, but you know, if you want to learn about sheep, the best one to learn from is somebody who tends sheep. And this guy's really helped me and he's helped millions of people. I think it says on that cover over a million copies sold. In this psalm, David continues, with his sheep-shepherd analogy to describe God's care for his people. Um, and this is, we're doing the second half, four, five, and six. And we learn that cared-for sheep are secure and settled sheep. Now, I hope you don't mind being called a sheep. I, I'm a sheep. Uh, I'm not going to call you dumb sheep, but you are a sheep. Settled sheep. And the other thing we learn from the second half of this psalm is that there is an outflow of grace and mercy. And this is true in the natural sense of sheep, and I'll get to that after a while, but there's a reason that we have this psalm and it teaches us that there's a result. It's not just God taking care of us for the sake of taking care of us, and that would be enough, but there's a reason that he shepherds us as his sheep. If you haven't turned already, uh, if you would turn to Psalm 23, and we're going to read the entire psalm again. We read it last week, but uh, if you would stand while we read the Word of God, uh, and if I would put on my glasses so it wouldn't be so blurry, that'd be nice too. I'm reading again from the English Standard Version, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the, everybody say through. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table before me in the presence Of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell 
in the house of the Lord forever. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would add your anointing and your understanding to the reading of your word. Your word that you inspired holy men of old to write down under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit and that you would cause it to come alive to us and that you would speak to each one of us today. And as I always pray, Lord God, that you would speak louder than I am today. I pray that you would anoint me to say what you want me to say and to not say what you don't want me to say. Thank you, Lord God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Everybody said, you can be seated. I said last week that the entirety and the summation of this psalm is found in the first five words. The Lord is my shepherd. Everything in this psalm is rooted in that fertile soil, and it grows out of that. So while we're dealing with the last half of this psalm, it still is rooted in the soil of the Lord being our shepherd. And because of that, we have no lack. He begins this verse that we're beginning with today, with verse 4, with, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... Another translation and an accurate one would be the valley of darkness. It's not, we're not just dealing with physical death when we talk about this valley, although that's obvious. We just sang about uh, not letting death rule us, but the valley of darkness. And it teaches us that life, let me tell you something, saints, trials and challenges are a natural part of the Christian life. If you don't believe that, you were just born yesterday. Trials and challenges, everybody say natural. It's a natural part of the Christian life, and there's huge value in when we get challenged. There's huge value when we are, are have trials in our lives. As a matter of fact, Peter writes this in his letter, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials. You are going through as if something strange were happening to you. You know what he's saying? It's natural. It's normal. Now, thank God we don't live perpetually in trials. Some of you say, oh, I have been. Well, there is light at the end of the tunnel. But we don't live that way. But but we do have times in our life when we have trials and challenges. And I'm telling you the same thing Peter said. Don't think it's some odd thing happening to you. I'm the only one going through this. No. As a matter of fact, the next verse, Peter says, instead, be very glad. James says, count it all joy when you encounter trials. Count it joy. What a weird thought. Well, we can either do that or not do that. And if we want to walk in victory, we need to, we need to consider. He says, even though I walk through, the key word here is the word through. We want to go around. We want to go under. We want to avoid. And sometimes in God's mercy, he will allow you to avoid certain situations. But the truth is, as your shepherd, he's going to lead you in places where you're going to face trials. Uh, in, in the natural world, world, a sheep, that when you're leading the sheep up the mountain, uh, going through ravines, gulches, and draws, that's, that's the best way 
to get to the top. It's the gentlest of grades if you're trying to get to the top. You wouldn't go over the top of the hill. You'd go through the valleys to get to the top. That's what a shepherd would do as he leads his sheep. And we can see that as disappointments, frustrations, discouragements, dilemmas, issues. Now, we can we can either complain about those things Sometimes we can do something about them. Most of the time we can't. Or we can allow God to do his work. When I find myself in challenging situations and, and be in pressure, the Bible says through many tribulations you enter the kingdom of God. The word there for, for uh, tribulations is the word pressure. Like taking a piece of an old chunk of coal, as John Anderson saying, and turning it into a diamond. That's pressure that does that. I say to God, uh, go ahead and do what you need to do. Now, you, if you want to speed it up, that'd be good too. But do your work. Don't waste this time. Don't waste this moment. And when we're when we're dealing with challenges, looking back and reflecting on God's faithfulness in all of our crisis and all of our circumstances, it will stimulate your faith. You can't live in the past, but you certainly should benefit from the past. Look back when you're, when you're in the midst of a fiery trial, whatever it may be. Turn around and look in your past and count the times that God has been faithful to you. The fact that you're still here, count that one. The fact that you're still alive. The fact that you're still functioning. The fact that you made it through those times, count that. And the more you, the more you count, the better you will be able to get through whatever it is you're facing right now. And then having walked through those times qualifies you to be a tower of strength to reach back and help someone who's going through a tough time. Don't waste your experience. Jesus said that. He said, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. There's that word again. But take courage I have overcome the world. Jesus said, I've already been through that. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way. Everybody say every way. Every way in which we're tempted, and yet he was without sin. Jesus has said, I have overcome the world. I have faced the challenge of the world. I have overcome the world, and now I give you my peace because I've been there, done that. And then he says these words. Even though I go through the valley of darkness or the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Imagine being in the valley of darkness, the valley of death, the valley of whatever we're facing. And being able to say to your shepherd, I will fear no evil, for you were with me. Can I tell you this morning that fear is a paralyzer? Fear will grip you. Fear will, will paralyze you so that you can't do anything one way or the other. Fear uh, will pollute your discernment. Fear will cause you to not be able to process what's in front of you because you're so afraid you can't even think about it. I'm asking God to help me right now because I don't want to say the wrong thing. Me neither, Corbin. But I don't want to miss the right thing either. 
Fear would pollute our discernment. Fear is a dictator if we will allow it. Fear will make you do things because of fear, not because you have thought it through or you've prayed it through or you've, you've made sensible decisions. Fear will say, you gotta do this or you can't do that and it will grip you. Saints, I beg you, don't let fear direct your life. Don't let fear paralyze you to where you can't move. You can't do anything. I'm not going to read it, but in Acts 14, there's a great account of Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. And and they get mad and they stone Paul. And I don't mean little cigarettes. I'm talking about rocks. They get up. They determine that he's okay. And what did Paul do immediately? He went right back into the city where they had just stoned him. They ministered a little more, and they left and went to another journey to three more cities. And Paul said, i tell you where I want to go next. They said, where? To Lystra. That's, that's where they just stoned him. And he wants to go back for some more. Why did he do that? Because he was not going to allow fear to govern his life. He was not going to allow fear to dictate where he went and where he didn't go. Lord, help me. In 1948, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay dealing with the atomic bomb. Remember, in those days, that was a a real threat. By the way, during during World War II, they asked C.S. Lewis to come to London on a regular basis and do radio broadcasts, preaching the gospel, teaching, explaining. And he did that on a regular basis. He left his family in, in their house, so he'd go to London and don't forget that during World War II, if you were in London, you had bombs dropping all around you. Boom. Boom. And you still went. And by the way, those radio broadcasts were put into book form. And it's probably his most famous book entitled Mere Christianity. We have mere Christianity today because C.S. Lewis chose not to be governed by fear. But anyway, that was extra. 1948, he wrote this essay, and I'm not going to read the whole essay, about dealing with the threat of the atomic bomb, the A-bomb. He finishes his essay with this. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint. I'm sure that was milk, a pint of milk. (laughs) In a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep. And thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. What would you do if there was an atomic bomb threat? What would I do if there was a threat? Any moment. I remember we were talking home group Wednesday night. About uh, when I was in second grade. The ones at the home group. 
were a little beyond me. By the way, I'm the youngest one in our home group. I rub that in every week. I think they're getting tired of hearing it. But in the second grade, we lived in, of course, we grew up in Panama City, Florida, and this was during the Bay of Pigs, and Kennedy had some decisions to be made, but every day we would take our desk and turn them around and get under them because at any moment we thought the, the Cuban Missile Crisis would result in something landing near us. And looking back, I'm thinking, yeah, that, I'm sure that did a lot of good. Those little old metal, thin metal desks we were sitting underneath them, like if, if they bombed us, like that would really help. But I remember thinking, I told the home group, the only thing that was on my mind during that was I didn't want to go home and my parents not be there. So I didn't know what was going on. You know, second grade, think about it. Looking back, we lived our lives. We kept living our lives, except for that brief moment when we turned our desks around and crawled under them for a few minutes. Everything else was we lived our lives. Zach Williams recorded the song, Fear, He is a Liar. He will take your breath, stop you in your steps. Fear, he is a liar. He will rob your rest. He will steal your happiness. He will cast, so you should cast your fear in the fire and cause fear. He is a liar. I know I'm spending extra time here. And don't get nervous. I'm not going to spend that much time on the rest of the message. Uh, but if you get hungry, you can go ahead and go. But please make your decisions based on rationale. More than that, make your decisions based on your faith in God and God being your shepherd. And David said, even though I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death, I refuse to fear evil. I'm going to tell you something. I refuse to be governed by fear. I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to say what I said Wednesday night, but I'm going to live my life without fear. And I'm not going to worry about an atomic bomb falling on my head. Jesus said in the in the great commission he said you go tell go bab, go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. He said behold I am with you to the end of the age. And I'm sure if I'm a disciple or an apostle listening to that, I'm thinking, I sure need you. We're going to do what you just said for us to do. We're going to need you. And Jesus said, I'm with you. David said, I will fear no evil because you are with me. The day that Jesus, by his spirit, departs from you, you have my permission to be fearful. Not that you need it. But as I understand it, that's not going to happen. He's going to be with you. I heard an evangelist years ago uh, say, I don't want to get into stuff. But anyway, he said, those of you who go to the bars, and some of you would be out of work if you couldn't go to the bars. But he said, some of those who go to the bars, I want you to know that when you get to that door, Jesus will st- will stops right there. He doesn't go with you in the bar. And he'll be there waiting for you when you come back. And I told him afterwards, a little short, a dumpy evangelist from South Africa, his name was Ronnie Ontong. I told him numerous things. But anyway, I said, Ronnie, that's wrong. You are, you're, you're teaching false doctrine. If you think Jesus is going to leave you anywhere, it's not going to happen. 
your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod is an extension of the owner's right arm, a symbol of his strength, of his power, and his authority. The staff, the rod was used to keep the sheep in line. And we, we always hear about that all that used for was to beat them. You know, Jesus told Peter, he said, if you love me, beat my sheep. I mean, feed my sheep. That's what he said. <clears throat> Need to read that the right way. In, in Moses' rod was used to demonstrate the power that God had given him. So the rod of the shepherd was to demonstrate his authority over the sheep. And because of that, the rod speaks of God's word. God's word is what he uses to direct us. It's his authority. It speaks of God's word because God's word is an extension of himself. You've heard me say numerous times, never separate God from his word. Never. It is the spirit of the living God using the living word that convicts our conscience of right conduct. The rod is representative of God giving us his word. The staff is symbolic of the spirit of God because he said you will guide them. He uses it to uses his staff to draw the sheep together. He uses the staff to give direction and to guide the sheep. Jesus has told us that the spirit would be sent to guide us and lead us into all truth. The Holy Spirit has come to be our director. The Holy Spirit has come to lay out a path for us and to lead us in the direction we should go. This is the same Spirit that reveals the truth of God's Word to our hearts, to our minds, and gives us spiritual understanding. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then he says something. He says, you prepare for me a table. And I read a very reliable commentary recently uh, about from someone who said, this is where David ceased using the sheep shepherd analogy. And as much as I appreciate this particular commentator, uh, he was wrong. <laughs> because this is not, he does not stop here. Philip Keller teaches us in his book that when he says, you prepare for me a table, he's talking about the high plateau of the sheep ranges that we refer to as mesa. Mesa is the Spanish word for table. And the shepherd would take his flock and he'd take them up into the range and he would ready the table. What is the table? This flat plateau where they would graze. This is where he would take them. And this is, Keller teaches us that when he was a shepherd, he would take his sheep up to a plateau. But before he took the sheep to the plateau, he would ready the table for them. He would go ahead for the arrival of his flocks and he'd bring salt and he'd bring minerals and he would distribute these around the table for the flock to graze on and to eat. Don't miss the analogy, saints. And he also would check the table for poisonous weeds and if there were any, he would pull them. He would clear the table of poisonous weeds. Do you see the analogy? The illuminated path that God gives us keeps us on God's grazing program. The, the illuminated path by the Holy Spirit prepares you and me to graze in God's fertile ground. Our good shepherd goes ahead of us. 
Our good shepherd. Here's a great example, saints. Here's a great example. Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked me for permission. Don't miss that. Did you hear what I just said? Satan has asked me for permission to sift you. I'm going to say that again, and I want you to imprint. Satan has asked me, Jesus, for permission. Sidebar. Satan appears before God in Job chapter 1, and God gives him permission to test Job. Without God's permission, it does not happen. I am so tired of people being afraid of the devil. Toothless, powerless, roaring lion with no teeth, no teeth in his mouth. I'm tired of that. Jesus said, Satan has asked me for permission to sift you. And you know, you heard me say, the next thing Peter expected to hear was, but I told him no. (laughs) But that's not what he heard. He said, yeah, he's asked me if I can sift you like wheat. I have prayed for you. Now, when he said, I have prayed for you, that's an indicator. That's an indicator. Well, what happened when he prayed for Peter? He went ahead of him and he prepared the way. He prayed before Peter was sifted. Peter was sifted. We all know that. In many ways, he failed. He failed the test. I have prayed for you. Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, as I said earlier. He was without sin, and he has totally identified himself with humanity. Totally. He knows what we go through. When we walk close to Christ, when we walk close to the Lord Jesus in prayer, in communication, in fellowship through the Holy Spirit... We're walking in a place of safety. It's always the distant sheep, the roamers and the wanderers that are picked off by predators. If you want to put yourself in a position to be derailed or sidetracked by your devil, then make, then isolate yourself. I told you last Sunday, I repeat it again today. I already preached this, but I'm going to preach it again. Uh, don't don't social distance. Please don't social distance. If you want a physical distance, that's fine. I like physical distancing. I said I was doing that before it was cool. <laughs> I said I, I go to the grocery store before there ever was a COVID, and I I get ready to go to the checkout, and I'd look down that aisle. If there's somebody in that aisle, I'd go to another one. And I'd keep going till I'd find me an aisle with nobody in it. And that's how it would go back to the register. Y'all, y'all think this is something new. Physical. Everybody say physical. Don't distance yourself socially from brothers and sisters in Christ. Use whatever means you have to, to maintain some kind of a social interaction with brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't isolate yourself. What waits us on God's table land in our world is this, joy. She just walked in. Look at there. As soon as I said joy, joy walked in the door. 
Peace. Is peace coming in? Waiting. <laughs> Contentment. Provision. Fulfillment. Protection. This is what God has for you on the tableland where he's taking you. So this sounds awfully ethereal. Not if you understand a relationship with Jesus Christ, that it's every day and it, you can, you can talk to Jesus and if you'll, if you'll quit talking long enough, he'll talk to you. That's still small voice and sometimes a brick bat, but he'll talk to you. I need to start using different terms because half the people don't have no idea what a brick bat is. Well, my, one of my favorite hymns. This is the chorus. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane that I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. And when he does plant your feet on higher ground, know this. He's already prepared the place. He's already prepared. You have anointed my head with oil. You've anointed my head with oil. Sheep in those days would be dealing with insects and flies and other irritations around their head. And they would, it would cause the sheep to become erratic. Well, I say then, I guess it's true still today. It would, it causes them to be erratic and to have frenzied behavior. I, I've never been around sheep, but I've seen a dog or a cat, especially a dog, is just have something on their face and they go crazy, swatting at their face and rubbing their face, face in the ground. And, and I can imagine that a sheep who's, it's dumb, not you, but real sheep. Dealing with the insects and the flies. And so the, the shepherd would mix up a concoction of linseed oil and sulfur and tar and put it on the nose and on the head of the sheep. Linseed oil, sulfur, and tar. I'm sure that smelled good. And there was an immediate change of behavior once that oil was applied. Immediately once they put that oil on the head of the sheep, they calmed down. Gone is the frenzy, gone is the irritability, and gone is the restlessness once he treated them with the oil concoction. You know how that relates to us. Sometimes in our world, it's the small, petty annoyances that ruin our day. Sometimes it's the little bitty uh, ticky-tack things that get, get, against, uh, get under our skin, let's say, and irritate us. And we need a continuous anointing of God's Holy Spirit to soothe the ever-present aggravations and issues. We need to constantly be fellowshipping with the Father. We need to constantly be fellowshipping with the Son. We need to constantly be fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit so that we can receive that anointing oil on our heads. Why is that, why is your head so important? My goodness, why is the helmet of salvation so important? Because it be begins with the mind. And that's why uh, Romans 12 talks about renewing the mind. It's an, it's an important thing. Sheep would often butt heads and fight by rubbing, and they would cause scabs and sores to develop on their heads, and this oil would treat that as well. Now, here's the analogy. I don't like carrying analogies too far, but here it is. Getting our heads together with the wrong people will eventually corrupt our thinking and therefore our actions. There is such a thing as stinking thinking. Or if you're from the deep south, stinking thinking. 
We don't like G's in the deep south. I might have to invite a different crowd because y'all don't laugh nearly enough. <laughs> I, I do have some uh, five-hour energy drinks in my office if anybody wants one. Paul writes this in Philippians. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell or think on these things. It's important what we think on. And then Paul, Paul, David says, my cup overflows. A lot of commentators don't even know what to do with that. They just skip over it. And once again, I remind us that the Bible sheds a lot of light on the commentaries. My cup overflows. The blessing of the good shepherd overflows in my life. What does he mean by that? We're remembering that when the Bible was written, there were no chapters and there were no verses. They just wrote. So he says, my cup overflows because surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. When I was a kid in the church and we'd sing, we'd sing a song with that line in it. I always wondered what was, what surely goodness looked like. Think about it. Think about a kid. Surely goodness. It's like in the movie Airplane. Remember? He said, surely you don't think, well, stop calling me Shirley. I mean, <laughs> surely goodness and mercy will follow me. So my cup overflows because of goodness and mercy. And we talk about goodness. We're not just talking about a goodness as a quality. Rather, it's goodness in action. It's goodness that expresses itself in deeds. Surely God's goodness follows me. And, and, and it catches you, by the way. And then we see the word mercy. I, I am not going to pronounce this right, but I'm going to give it the, the Bay County pronouncing Hesed. C-H-E-C-E-D. Hesed, which is the Hebrew counterpart of the word agape. But we get the word mercy. And when we're in distress, when we're in that challenging situation, when we're in that moment that we need the Lord to be our shepherd, God responds with goodness and mercy because it's His nature. Loving kindness is His nature. And almost always when you see loving kindness in the Old Testament, it's hesed. Again, that's nowhere close to how you're supposed to pronounce it, but... Somewhere along the way, I picked this up from Brother Charles Simpson, that Hesed is God's love and faithfulness to be or provide whatever is needed to see us through the land of his promise. It's whatever we need. It's, it's his mercy towards us. It's his faithfulness to us. It's his loving kindness to us in that moment of need. It's a word that's hard to pronounce, and in many ways, it's a word for us to comp- hard for us to comprehend because we can't think that way. But but David is writing in light of all of this, my cup overflows because I have from my shepherd goodness and mercy, and it's going to follow me all the days. My it's not going away. Mercy, 
A good definition for mercy is active compassion. Active or compassion that creates action. That's mercy. It's new every morning. It will never fail. Lamentations, Jeremiah writes this, and we sing the song, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Everybody say never. never. Say it again. Never. Oh, never ceases. When you're in the midst of your challenge, remember that the steadfast love of the Lord, which is Hesed, by the way, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Everybody say never. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. You go to bed tonight. You go to sleep. You get up. You start looking around on your nightstand for your old mercies you had yesterday. They're not there. Why? Because God has new mercies for you today. What in the world does that mean? It means that every day is a new day. Every day is an empowered day. Every day is a day bathed in God's mercies. What you had yesterday won't work today. But what you have today will work today. Now, if you're just religious, none of this means a thing to you. If you're just going through the motion, it, you, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you're fellowshipping with God every day, if you're communicating with God every day, then you totally understand what I'm talking about. These qualities of God, goodness and mercy, they're pursuing or chasing us all the days of our life. Let me tell you something. Uh, you'll never win a foot race with God. If God's chasing you, he will most certainly catch you. If God's goodness and mercy are pursuing you, they will most definitely catch you. Is that a good thing? Yes. It is a good thing. Even when we think we can survive better on our own. Even when we think we've got it together. Even when we think we've read enough and thought enough and heard enough sermons. That we can, we can work it out. But even then. Even then. We need his goodness. We need his mercy. The questions we have to ask ourselves, is this flow of goodness and mercy intended for my enjoyment only? Here we go to the point that I made earlier. Is this flow of goodness and mercy, is the fact that God's goodness and mercy are pursuing me and will, will overtake me, is it just for my enjoyment alone? And let me just hasten to add, God has no problem with your enjoyment. But is it the only reason? As spoiled children of God, we think, yeah, he exists for us. He exists for me. Wrong God. I exist for him. Is the flow of goodness and mercy intended for my enjoyment only? Or is the design of God for these qualities to pass on through me to benefit others. Now, I'm going to try to describe this without getting too graphic, but let me just tell you, when sheep are grazing the, the table land and the pasture land, and they, 
they digest the food There's another part of this process where they divest themselves of the waste. And in that waste, there's seed. And when they divest themselves of the waste in their bodies, they are fertilizing the soil. Okay, they'll do good so far. So as they walk around, they're leaving things behind. Fertilizer. When I, when I was growing up, our next door neighbors were, they were fishermen by trade. And I mean, literally, they go out in the bay and the gulf and they were, that's how they made their living. Oysters and fish and shrimp and, and uh, fortunately, they would come back from a day's haul and they'd bring a number three. Anybody know what a number three wash tub looks like? Well, I guess I am getting old. I used to bathe in a what number three. Anyway, they're about that big around. Full of what I just said, oysters and shrimp and fish. But one day they decided that they needed to fertilize their yard. And they went and got somewhere a big old bunch of horse manure and they spread it over every square inch of their yard it stopped my going next door to play with the kids I can tell you that <laughs> because we didn't know any other way to go except barefooted back then he's, he's finding out that I was a redneck fertilizer where sheep walk they leave behind fertility and weed free land what I want to ask us is, what do I, what do you leave behind? Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whatever you're engaging in, what is it that you're leaving behind? What is it that I'm leaving behind? What fertilizer are we leaving? What are we, what are we helping? Is it sadness or gladness? Is it peace or turmoil? Here's, here's one. Hang on. Is it forgiveness or bitterness? What are you leaving behind? Contentment? We dealt with that last week. Or conflict? Love? Or self-preservation? What are we leaving behind? What kind of sheep are we anyway? Philip Keller said, the only real practical measure of my appreciation for the goodness and mercy of God to me is the extent to which I am in turn prepared to show goodness and mercy to others. To what degree are you prepared to extend goodness and mercy to others? When that person cuts you off in traffic, somebody said, that man just quit preaching and he got the meddling. Are you prepared to say any number of things? They didn't see me. When you, when you go to the checkout at the grocery store and the little girl's rude to you or ignores you and you want to complain to the manager, 
Does the thought ever occur to you that something happened just before they got to work? I mean, maybe they ordered the wrong color lipstick or something. I don't know. Something happened in their world to cause them to come with a a negative attitude? Or are you ready to jump on them feet first? You say, well, he's talking about me. No, I'm not. I'm not talking about anybody. With my hand up. He said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Why do we dwell in the house of the Lord? Because of the Lord. Because of our shepherd. In the house of the Lord, we sit down and remain. Dwell means to sit down and remain. That's where we live. We live in God's house. What does that mean? It means the family or the household of the flock of the good shepherd. We dwell in the house of the Lord because of the Lord's goodness and mercy. Because he is our shepherd and because he does take care of us. It is his pursuing goodness and mercy that causes me to remain. To remain in his flock for the length of my days. It is him. That which I have committed to him. He is able to keep it. He's able. Everybody say able. He's able to keep whatever it is you've committed to him. We just sang that the devil can't come and pluck us out of God's hand. I hear things like, well, I need to make things right so I can go to heaven. You did that when you were born again. You did that when you said yes to Jesus and you went through a supernatural conversion that can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. You made things right so you can go to heaven then. Right then, the ink pen was picked up and your name was written in a Lamb's Book of Life. And this is ink that cannot be erased. It's not disappearing ink. It's eternal ink. Now you might be displeasing to God after that and he has ways to straighten you out. That's his mercy, by the way. Did you know God's judgment is his mercy? God's judgment to you is his mercy. If he didn't care about you, he'd leave you in your mess. But when he pronounces judgment on you, which is simply... Judgment is simply giving us over to our own vices or giving us what we want. And it's merciful because his intention is not to destroy us, but to bring us back. When you read the Old Testament, you th- a lot of people read the Old Testament and all they see is a fire-breathing, angry God who's always ready to, to annihilate Israel. But you'll also read his, his intention was to bring them back. Every time. When you depart from the prescribed path of God, he will send judgment. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. And he wants to bring you back. And when you're back, you thank God for it. We should boast to others about how good our shepherd is. Paul said, if we're going to boast, let us boast in the Lord. Brag to people about how good your shepherd is. Tell people. Let me tell you about who who I serve. 
Our enemy, Satan, is an uncaring, ruthless shepherd of his flock. He's, he's, uh, he is not a benevolent shepherd. He is a, a, a corrupt dictator of those who are in his flock. But you and I, we have the good shepherd. And while we're in his hands, which is for eternity, he is taking care of his sheep. You. I'll close with this. There's one way. Everybody say one way into the fold. Only one way. And Jesus said, John 10, 9, he said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There's no other way to find ourselves in the good graces of the good shepherd except that we go in through the good shepherd. We go in through the door. There's no other way. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life, indicating there is no other. We who have... We who have left the kingdom of darkness and have been translated, transferred into the kingdom of light, we dwell in the house of the Lord with the Lord God himself, our shepherd. And because of that, we shall not lack, we shall not want, and so forth. I hope this gives you encouragement and strength in the days ahead. Stand with me.